Hello, my name is Joanna Brooke. I'm really, really excited to be able to talk with you today. Thanks so much for coming. And I want to apologize that this is not face-to-face. -face. I was hoping to be there in person at Gresham College, but I'm not able to to do that. Um, the next talk I will be giving will be face-to-face, -face, so I hope to actually meet some of you. That would be really great. But as you know, um, I am the Professor of Rhetoric um, here at Gresham College. I'm also Professor of History at Birkbeck, and this is the first in a series of talks that I'm going to be giving on sex, a modern history. So this is the first of, of six. I have done other lecture series at um, Gresham, so please just check them out on the website. They are all up there. Um, I gave a series on the body, um, series of six on the body, and another series on evil women. And some of the themes, if you're interested in the themes of today, you may be interested in those, those series as well. But when I was trying to think of what I wanted to talk about today, the one thing I thought about was... Let's just not forget sexual pleasure. Let's not forget sexual pleasure. I mean, throughout human history, sexual danger has regulated social lives and subjectivities. You know, if you want to think about the yellow press of the 19th century, late 19th century, with their sort of lurid stories of rape and mutilation, to 1980s, the all men are rapists mantra of feminists such as um, Andrea Dworkin, Susan Brown Miller, Robin Morgan. Today, when the sexual abuse of girls, boys, women, men is provoking widespread despair, the pain associated with sex is palpable. Now, admittedly, this series of lectures will be reflecting on many forms of sexual vulnerability and harms. But to begin with, I wanted to start, I want to explore pleasure. And I was reminded of Carol Vance's famous statement at the 1982 Barnard Conference on Sexuality in New York, where she contended that feminists must insist that women are sexual subjects which requires a commitment to increasing women's pleasure and joy and not just decreasing our misery. So what does this commitment to pleasure um, mean for the historian? I think it calls for a close analysis of the variable ways that the various pleasures of the flesh have been contested given meaning, and revised. So in this talk, I've got four sections, four sections I want to I go through with you. First, what do we mean by sexual pleasure? Second, what do changes in sex advice reveal about the way sexual mores and practices have shifted from the 1920s to the present? Third, how have recent changes in the medicalization of sexual pleasure affected understandings of the sexed body? And finally, and very, very briefly, why should we care? Why should sexual pleasure matter? Okay, first, what is sexual pleasure? It has no stable meaning. The norms, values, practices attributed or attached to sexual pleasure have changed very dramatically over time. 
I'm going to start with two broad perspectives or approaches to sexual pleasure that I think are not helpful. And these are the pre-social and the supra-social models. Now, the pre-social approach believes that sexual pleasure arises in a rather uncomplicated fashion from the physiological body, which is typically gendered male. As Susan Lawrence and Kay Biniex observed in their really wonderful analysis of anatomy texts between 1890 and 1989, they wrote that the illustrations, vocabulary and syntax in these texts primarily depict male anatomy as the norm or standard against which female structures are compared. It was a case of male, then female. Male is norm, female is different. Now, the anatomical model doesn't actually deny that interpersonal, social, environmental contexts influence the way people experience pleasure. But they focus on the way instinctual urges animalistic or biological imperatives, reproductive or evolutionary desires underpin sex acts. I think a typical example is the 1960s notion of a human sexual response cycle conceived by William Masters and Virginia Johnson in their classic 1966 text entitled Human Sexual Response. So for them, you see, sexual pleasure moves from arousal to plateau to orgasm, then resolution. And this occurs universally because it's deeply wired in human physiology. Now, the second commonplace but equally, I think, unhelpful model of sexual pleasure is the supra-social, which disparages that kind of reductive physiological approach, insisting that actually there's something transcendental about sexual ecstasy. And this model is also similarly historically diverse. It believes that sexual pleasure is or leads to mystical transcendent transcendentalism. Um, I'm thinking here of Bernini's statue of the medieval mystic Teresa of Avila. Or is an aspect of the romantic unity of soulmates. Or, more recently, that it leads to revelations of the ultimate truth about oneself and the other. Um, we can talk about why I think both are deeply flawed models. I think it's a more productive way, however, of thinking about sexual pleasure starts from the premise that sexual delights do not reside exclusively in bodies, nor do they transcend the political and social world. They are fluid, emerging in complex interactions between bodies and minds that occur within social relations and regimes of power. So in other words, this approach um, takes really seriously the insights of Foucault about the nature of power as constitutive rather than repressive. So what I mean by that, power shapes and generates 
sexual pleasure rather than simply repressing it. Modern attempts to repress sexuality, in fact, open up the way for a proliferation of discourses about sex. Psychiatrists, psychologists, sexologists generate new ways of producing sexual pleasure. These professionals create the norms, the taxonomies, the ideologies that constitute the desiring sexual subject. Sex manuals that compile medical professional views, then, are, I think, particularly useful in revealing the norms and rules assigned to sexual practices. For example, the missionary position or clitoral stimulation or male homosexuality. Sexual pleasures are inscribed their dominant meaning and produce heteronormative and deviant human subjects. So, what can we learn from changes in the advice given in sex manuals about the changes in sexual mores and practices between the 1920s and the present? And what factors have contributed to these changes? This talk, I'm only going to, I've only got less than an hour, 45 minutes, um, only explores Anglo-American cultures during the 20th century. However, as we all know, sex manuals have existed for centuries. The first was the pseudo-Aristotle's masterpiece, or The Secrets of Generation, which was published in over a hundred editions between 1684 and 1930. In the 20th century, however, sex manuals didn't rely on either divine instincts or biological impulses to guide married couples. Both men and women, they assumed, needed to be instructed in the art as well as the science of achieving pleasure through intercourse. And this could only be achieved by a combination of sexual knowledge, no-nonsense experimentation, and perseverance. Many of these novels, many of these novels, many of these manuals became bestsellers. Now, of course, it would be wrong to infer actual sexual practices from advice manuals, but I do think that they offer an indication of people's interests as well as circulating norms and ideals. So, who were these sex manuals addressed to and what instructions are they giving to readers? Well, it's really interesting. If you look at the early 20th century, these manuals are written primarily for husbands, based on an assumption that men were responsible for the sexual pleasure, not only of themselves, which in this period was largely taken for granted for so-called normal men, but also for their wives. The key goal was mutual genital satisfaction within marital heterosexual intercourse. And to achieve this mutuality, husbands required physiological knowledge of female anatomy, accompanied by their deliberative labor and perseverance. Now, the degree of prescription in some of these manuals could be extremely daunting. Uh, just to give you one example, um, Oliver Butterfield's Sex Life in Marriage 1937. In it, male readers are solemnly informed that they need to 
insert their penises into vaginas at a precise 45 degree angle downwards. More typically, though, um, sex manuals provide broad generalizations. Best-selling authors, I'm thinking here of Marie Stopes, 1931 classic, Married Love, sold 750 copies in only six years. Um, Thomas van der Veld in Ideal Marriage, the most widely read manual of the 1930s. I mean, these they, they all implied that while men were sexually aroused by visual triggers, women required prolonged emotional wooing. And they emphasized this urgent need for competent male technique, urging husbands to invest time, invest energy into giving their wives an orgasm. Female orgasm was necessary because its pleasure would ensure marital stability. So what you get here is you get husbands being um, presented as the kind of knowing sexual partners who had to be in charge if they were going to succeed in awakening the sexual desires of their wives. So this is, if you like, the sleeping beauty notion of sexual violence. And Van der Velde put it um, really nicely. He said, the wife must be taught not only how to behave in coitus, but above all, how and what to feel in this unique act. So what you get is that in contrast to the relatively passive wives whom husbands needed to labor over, the sexual pleasures of men were assumed to be straightforward, based primarily on physiological impulses. Their main challenge was simply to maintain erections, control ejaculations sufficiently long enough to ensure their wives' enjoyment. Well, you know what? They thought there was a lot at stake here. The 1920s, 1930s were marked by the turmoil of the 1914-18 war. Gender relations had been disruptive, creating tensions. Women, well, they had enjoyed actually the autonomy associated with enhanced employment opportunities, greater social freedoms, the success of their suffrage demands. Yet men believed that their sacrifices should be rewarded and masculine privileges restored. So increased access to birth control. Remember, many of these sex manuals were written by advocates of contraception. Anyway, increased access to birth control had also enabled wives to feel more positive towards sex without the anxieties of pregnancy. Poor male technique in the bedroom, it was feared, could place the entire institution of marriage at risk. The sexually frustrated wife was an unsatisfactory one. As J.F. Hayden warned in The Art of Marriage, 1920, an sexually unsatisfied woman, quote, becomes irritable. Nervous, restless, sleeps poorly, worries over nothing, becomes ailing and rapidly ages. This fate could be averted, he went on, through the treatment or education of husbands on how to sexually satiate their wives. 
in achieving this goal would have miraculous effects in creating a contented wife. Her, quote, complexion clears up, her eyes acquire a luster, her walk has a spring to it, which is not did not possess before. Her appetite is fine, she is jolly and happy. Life has a new interest which it did not possess before. In short, she is a thoroughly permeated, she is thoroughly permeated with the joy of living. As historian Jessamin uh, Newhouse perceptively observes in a wonderful article she wrote entitled The Importance of Being Orgasmic, um, you can get the, the reference um, on my online version um, of this talk, she wrote that by advocating women's pleasure, the authors of sex manuals in the 1920s and 1930s allowed a greater range of expression for women in marriage. However, by linking that pleasure inextricably to male sexual skill, they bolstered the older general gender norms shaping marriage and marital sex. Now, these ways of conceiving of sexual pleasure were dramatically overturned from the 1940s. These later authors played significantly more attention to male sexual pleasure. And interestingly, they shift blame, shifted blame for unsatisfying sexual relations firmly onto women. It was her responsibility to ensure that her husband was sexually fulfilled. So in other words, the sleeping beauty who needed to be aroused by her husband's wooing and kisses was suddenly fully awake. Any passivity on her part was labeled fragility. Husbands were also transformed into the sensitive gender who required the delicate emotional management by their wives. Wives needed to, or they were told that they needed to, reassure their husbands of uh, their, that's the husband's masculine virility and masterful presence in the bedroom. This new, if you like, servicing role for women in the manuals was accompanied by an antipathy towards the female body and its secretions. I think the most vicious expression of this, at least the one most vicious I can find, can be seen in John Gill's um, manual, How to Hold Your Husband, Frank Psychoanalysis for Happy Marriage. How to Hold Your Husband, Frank Psychoanalysis for Happy Marriage, 1951, when he lamented that, even before the honeymoon is over, some women let down grievously in the matter of female hygiene. The sweet daintiness that her husband prizes so highly suddenly evaporates. The genitals are allowed to give off a revolting odour of which she herself is quite unaware. He contended that nothing so sickens a man as this unforgivable despoiling of his ideas of femininity and daintiness. Well, now the female sex body, and surprisingly also underwent a transformation. The clitoris, which had played such an orgasmic role in the earlier texts, were downgraded, even denigrated. Many authors embraced Freud's notion about vaginal orgasms, 
First espoused um, 1905, Freud had maintained that young girls unconsciously recognized clitoral pleasures. As girls matured, however, their immature clitoral pleasures would ideally be displaced to their vaginas. In this way, girls separated themselves from their fathers in order to prepare themselves for heterosexual coupling with their husband. As Freud put it in Three Contributions to the Theory of Sex, if the transference of the erogenous excitability from the clitoris to the vagina has succeeded, the woman has thus changed her leading zone for the future sexual activity. Well, psychoanalyst Helen Deschen made extensive use of the theory of vaginal orgasms in her highly influential two-volume book, The Psychology of Women, published in 1943 and 1945. According to her, the vagina was passive and could only be awakened by the penis. This was the origin of the deep female fantasy to be overpowered. The husband's, as she put it, aggressive penetration of the vagina led to its transformation into an erogenous zone. For her, this explained the innate masochism of female sexuality. But, you know, um, authors of sex manual in this, manuals in this period didn't actually need to be Freudians to dismiss the clitoris as the source for pleasure for adult women. A book called Sex Technique for Husband and Wife, 1949, categorically declared that the clitoris, while important, is not nearly as important as many of us have been taught or led to believe. In A Guide to a Good Marriage, published in 1955, Richard Steiner announced that there are, I believe, many good marriages in the course of which the wife seldom achieves an orgasm in the sexual relationship. But this is possible only when there is a cheerful acceptance of this fact on the part of husband and wife. So what you see here is that unlike the 1920s and the 1930s, husbands no, no longer needed to patiently caress and kiss the clitoris. Both partners should simply chirpily resign themselves to the fact that her sexual pleasure would be diminutive. In the widely purchased manual, Love Without Fear, How to Achieve Sexual Happiness in Marriage, 1947, Chesa even explicitly advised women to fake orgasms. The misleadingly dubbed sexual revolution of the 1960s saw again a reversal of these views. And what's interesting is that the audience for these manuals changed. It was actually no longer assumed that sexual pleasure was the exclusive privilege of married couples. So you get authors are starting now to write about women, men, partners, couples, rather than husbands or wives. The title of Helen Gurley Brown's book, Sex and the Single Girl, 1962, made this explicit. Its fundamental premise was that unmarried women sought sexual pleasure for their own satisfaction, not as part of a marital contract or not as part of a duty towards wives, 1920s to 30s, or husbands, 1940s to 50s. 
and the clitoris makes a miraculous reappearance after its neglect in the 1940s. Female sexual pleasure returned. Alfred Kinsey's 1953 classic, Sexual Behaviour in the Human Female, was actually really quite important in instigating this change. He um, insisted that women were, quote, frequently not content with one orgasmic experience. And if there was no, if there was no psychosocial distraction to repress sexual tension, many well-adjusted women enjoy a minimum of three or four orgiastic experiences before they reach apparent satiation. By the 1960s, Kingsley's observation had in fact become commonplace. Master and Johnson's Human Sexual Response, 1966, prioritized female sexual response, even positioning male sexual responses in the role of variation. So he observed that while men generally required a period of rest before having a second orgasm, clitorises could repeat the pleasure cycle over and over again. This meant that female sexual pleasure was not dependent upon penises. It was also by its very nature different to that of men. It was more active. Now, one driving force, or a driving force, behind these changes was a revolution in gender relations, particularly the view that women had an equal right to erotic fulfillment as men. As in the 1920s, improved access to effective birth control for women, by women, was important. The birth control pill was approved by the American Federal Drug Administration in 1955, but it was for women with menstrual problems. Within three to four years, it had been made widely available as a contraceptive in both the US and Britain. Together with the introduction of intrauterine devices, reproductive and recreational sex were separated also get soaring levels of female um, employment, secularism, discontent with gendered domestic labor norms, and a burgeoning consumerist culture devoted to pleasure that also contributed to this. But the main driving force was ideological, the revolution inspired by feminist thought. In terms of sexual pleasure, Influential books include um, Nancy uh, Friday's collection of female sexual fantasies in My Secret Garden, 1973, um, Erica Young's novel, Fear of Flying, also 1973, um, Heights, The Height Reports on Female Report on Female Sexuality, 1976. And all of these books and many, many others dwelt enthusiastically and in exquisite detail on women's orgasms and the ability of female sexual pleasure to destabilize the patriarchy. Now, not surprisingly, some writers of sex manuals felt rather threatened by all of this. The male author of The Sensuous Man, 1971, starts one chapter with the following. I have a recurring nightmare in which the woman to whom I am making passionate love suddenly cries out, male chauvinist, pig 
and kicks me out of bed. It could be worse, of course. The more militant members of the contemporary women's liberation movement would settle for nothing short of castration, with can openers, scissors, and rusty razor blades. Well, despite the sensationalist account of the risks posed by men by feminism, the sensuous man actually endorsed much feminist thinking, including the view that there's no such thing as the vagina orgasm. As he wrote, all female orgasms are clitorial in origin. Now, feminist authors would go much further than this. For them, sexual pleasure was not dependent upon satisfactory interactions between sexed bodies, but could be accomplished through masturbation or fantasy. Keyword, autonomy. Biology, instincts, nature jettisoned for talk of patriarchy, prejudice, power. Female sexual satisfaction was being hindered by politics, not personalities. A new development that we see is the publication of numerous explicitly feminist manuals written by and for women. And these manuals subconsciously distanced themselves from male sex experts. Why did women need to listen to male experts when they could consult their own bodies? Women possessed expert knowledge of themselves. Now, an immediate target, no surprise here, was the vaginal orgasm. Once again, female sexual pleasure located in the clitoris. The most influential demolition of the vaginal orgasm concept was published by Anne Koditz in 1970. And what she argued was that anyone who knew the facts of female anatomy and sexual response would know that, although there are many areas for sexual arousal, there is only one area for sexual climax, and that is the clitoris. But, she went on, since the clitoris is not necessarily stimulated sufficiently in the conventional sexual positions, we are left frigid. She predicted that recognition of the clitoral orgasm would threaten heterosexual institutions. After all, it proved that women didn't need men. They could have lesbian partners. They could masturbate with a vibrator or their own hand. The most influential feminist manual on female sexual pleasure was Our Bodies, Ourselves. It's a great title, Our Bodies, Ourselves. And it originated in 1969 when the Boston Women's Health Collective started a consciousness-raising discussion group. And this led to the publication of the book a year later. Now, by 1976, the book had sold 850,000 copies. By 1999, 4 million copies. Between 1973 and 2005, it went through seven English-language editions and two Spanish-language ones in the US, in addition to over 20 worldwide. Today, it's been translated into nearly 40 languages. Again, not everyone approved. Jerry Falwell, leader of the moral majority, attempted to get it banned from schools and libraries. However, contemporary sociology judged it one of the 10 most influential books of the late 20th century. And the American Library Association called it one of the 10 all-time books 
for young people. Our body, ourselves, contained extended and excited discussions about the clitoris as the pleasure organ. And it provided women, it being the clitoris, provided women with autonomous routes to pleasure. And just to give you a sense of the tone of the book, the, the, the prose, I just want to read you very briefly um, a passage about masturbation, which goes like this. To masturbate, um, you need to know something about your body, and in particular about your clitoris, in brackets, it spells it out, K-L-I-T-O-R-I-S, so that people know how to pronounce it, clitoris. This is a small, round ball of flesh located above the opening of the vagina, and it is the center of the most, of the most sexual stimulation. It functions like that of the penis in the man. When it's rubbed up and down rhythmically, you get excited. The clitoris is where all female orgasms happen whether by masturbation, intercourse, or fantasy. So, in other words, this book was an extended celebration of the female body. It encouraged women to enjoy their bodies and openly uh, enjoy it and explore it. One passage, for example, famous passage, tells readers or urges readers, female readers, to take a mirror and examine yourself, touch yourself, smell yourself, even taste your own secretions. You are your body, and you are not obscene. Well, as new editions were published, you, get, you begin to see changes being made. Within three years of its first publication, the clitoris was no longer described as a small round ball of flesh, but as an extensive organ. The revised passage no longer focused only on what women could actually see or feel, but also on the vast expanse of tissue deeper within their bodies. And in the, the written version of this paper, which you can download from the Gresham website, I've given you extensive quotations just to illustrate this, um, this shift, but we don't have time to do that um, during this talk. But basically, um, paragraph after paragraphs are devoted to a detailed discussion of the vast and complex anatomy of the clitoris. The matter-of-fact and extensive descriptions of anatomy replaced the earlier version which focused on what could be felt or what could be seen. Interestingly, um, it was also no longer considered necessary to reassure women that their bodies were not obscene. Now, although Our Bodies Ourselves was a revolutionary text which arose out of the experience of women for whom the personal was political. However, its women were actually a very small subset. They were educated, highly educated, middle class, and white. Furthermore, the different editions gradually became less connected with its consciousness-raising founders. The manual, remember, had originally been collectively written it had been printed by a small Marxist press on cheap newsprint, sold for only 35 cents. It even included a controversial, for the time, chapter written by a Boston gay collective and a transient criticism or critique of the American health system. As early, though, as 1973, the manual 
you can see very gradually, was turning itself into a glossy and rather expensive book, three times longer than its original, and published by the mainstream publishing house Simon Schuster. It was also produced by a board as opposed to a collective. As Chris um, Hobbs complained in the radical uh, feminist periodical Off Our Backs, the 1973 edition was less angry, contains fewer mentions of capitalism, imperialism, revolution, and male chauvinism. P was changed to urinate, and communal fucking became communal lovemaking. Black rights and liberationist movements were also making their protests heard. By the late 1990s, as Kathy Davis observes in her history, her book about the making of our bodies ourselves, um, she wrote that a racialized structure of privilege and power was built into the organization with a white founder dominated board making the decisions and representing the public face of the um, book collective on the one hand. On the other hand, staff members, several of whom are women of colour, doing the daily work of running the organisation without getting recognition for it. Well, this was no longer going to be tolerated. As the editions grew, the universal female body of Our Bodies Ourselves started acknowledging difference by race, sexual orientation, age and class, for example. This recognition of diversity was increasingly typical of sex manuals published in the 1970s. So, for example, we get... Um, the joy of lesbian sex, the joy of gay sex, and for minoritized people from um, um, uh, disabled communities, we get towards intimacy, family planning, and sexuality concerns of physically disabled women. Our women ourselves was flawed, but it did herald in a revolution in thinking about female sexual pleasure from a feminist perspective. Now, around the same time, however, there was a very different, but perhaps equally radical, model for sex manuals that was emerging. And the key example of this was Alex um, Comfort's The Joy of Sex, 1972. Now, it really would be hard to find anyone more different to the collective of feminists who wrote Our Bodies, Ourselves. Comfort was not an expert on human psycho psychology, human behavior, human sexuality. He was a biochemist, a geontologist, works with elderly people, and a snail expert. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is that of biologist um, Steve Jones, who once joked that, it is an iron rule in our trade that no one gets anywhere until they give up snails. <laughs> he was referring to the fact that Edgar Allan Poe Lewis Carroll and Alex Comfort only became famous after abandoning their research on gastropods. Equally, while our body ourselves focused on female bodies and their pleasures, Comfort's manual purported to be concerned with providing a sexual cookbook for both sexes. 
His book was an imitation of The Joy of Cooking, which had been published 50 years earlier, but was and remains one of the most influential cookbooks in America. Now, although it failed to achieve the longevity of The Joy of Cooking, The Joy of Sex soared to number one in the charts where it remained for more than a year, and it was a bestseller for around six years. Like many cookbooks, Comfort structured his manual around main courses, sauces and pickles, problems, implying that if readers followed his recipes correctly, they could achieve the sexual equivalent of a perfect chocolate lava pudding, complete with the requisite runny centre. Well, anyway, Comfort informed his readers that chef-grade cooking doesn't happen naturally. It starts at the point where people know how to prepare and enjoy food, are curious about it and willing to take trouble preparing it, read recipe hints, and find they are helped by one or two detailed techniques. But, he continued, just as it's hard to make mayonnaise by trial and error, cordon bleu sex is equally in the same situation. So, who did he address his manual to? He says he addressed it to adventurous, uninhibited lovers who want to find the limits of their ability to enjoy sex. He didn't assume that the partners were married, and indeed he openly discusses group sex. Experimentation was what was essential, with nothing off limits. You know, from the missionary position to phallic plugs, spanking, wearing rubber, the book was lavishly illustrated with sketches of couples engaged in the positions discussed. And this was, of course, a novel feature for sex manuals of the time. Now, despite Comfort's open and liberationist sentiments, the joy of sex was racist, heterosexist, fellow-centric, and more concerned with male than female pleasure. The illustrations only show white people, except when dealing with so-called exotic sexual practices of India and Japan. It gives certain sexual positions extremely offensive names, most notably the negress, a highly racist term for a sexual position that involves total submission by the female partner. Comfort also believed that homosexuality was inferior. It was an immature form of behavior. When describing sexual positions, he assumed basically a more active male and a more passive female. Just to give you an example, while men were given nine intercourse positions or techniques, women were only provided with three. Now, of these three, one was nearly impossible for most women to perform, while the other, woman on top, came with warnings about the dangers to the penis if the woman happened to be clumsy. Women were told that they should ensure that they remained slim, wore sexy clothes, trimmed their pubic hair, had a shower post-coitus, rather than using a bidet. Um, I like this one. Uh, he said, this is because showering looks better than sitting on a bidet like a battery hen. <laughs> it wasn't, was it any wonder that he contended that the matrimonial or missionary position was the most rewarding 
of all sexual positions. But it's when Comfort turns to discuss sexual organs that his fellow centrism becomes, I think, really quite marked. He writes um, the following. The penis is more symbolically important than any other human organ. It was a dominance signal. It collects anxieties and folklore, and it is a focus for all sorts of magical manipulations. In contrast, the vulva was slightly scary to children, primitives, and males generally. It looks like a castrated, castrating wound and bleeds regularly. It swallows the penis and regurgitates it limp. It can probably bite, and so on. These biological programmed anxieties are the origins of most male hang-ups, including homosexuality. <laughs> Freud would have been delighted by such a transparent exposition of the Medusa myth and castration complex. But the main revolution, if we move further on, the main revolution in sex manuals from the 1990s was its medicalization of sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure was co-opted by big business and pharmaceutical companies. By the 1990s, America's was, Americans were spending more than $8 billion on sex performances, sex toys, sex objects. And this had a really significant impact on ideas about sexual pleasure, in particular, in particularly when medicalization and consumer capitalism forged a powerful alliance. Now, many facets of this alliance will be discussed in other talks of this series, particularly when we, we turn to pornography. But for this talk, I just want to mention the marketing of vacuum pumps, intrapenile injections, and from 1988, of that delicate blue diamond-shaped pill, Viagra, as really quite important in cementing ideas about male sexual pleasure and a hydraulic notion of male sexuality. Penile penetration was conceived of as the kind of royal road to real sexual pleasure, and the result was the de-eroticization of the rest of the male body. Indeed, survey evidence, some survey evidence, um, suggests that men who used Viagra reduced their non-penetrative sexual activities prioritizing, as the scientists said, prioritizing coital sex as the primary incentive for and mode of sexual relations. Not being able to maintain an erection and ejaculate, labeled impotence, and then from 1980s, erectile dysfunction, was turned into an organic illness that required pharmaceutical intervention. But this is interesting, I think. Pharmaceutical interventions meant that even normal men were conceived of as inadequate. The authors of The Virility Solution, The Virility Solution, Everything You Need to Know About Viagra, The Potency Pill That Can Restore and Enhance Male Sexuality, which came out in 1998. And this expressed this view most bluntly. They asked their readers, should a man take the pill to improve erections if he doesn't think he has ED, erectile dysfunction? The answer? If a man takes the pill and his erections improve, then he had ED after all. 
The scientific research on the biological mechanisms of penile erection had a direct corollary to female sexual function. Many scientists who worked on vascular mechanisms of penile erection turned to the female equivalent, exploring vascular flow to the female genitals. Huge social and economic capital was invested in marketing products such as estrogens to women, which, as Palmer put it, served to construct robust beliefs that these products are needed for the good life. One effect has been the increased primacy of orgasm as a teleology of sexual intercourse. A performance-based successful act of sexual intercourse had to end with orgasm for all participants. And some researchers um, argue that this has led to an increase of people faking it. Not only because they don't want to hurt their, their um, partner's feelings or they feel they may be regarded as somehow abnormal, but also because it's the only way they know how to end an act of intercourse. Today, around one quarter of men and one half of women admit to having pretended to have an orgasm. Okay, just, just to end here, I want to conclude with a really brief statement about why sexual pleasure should matter to academics, commentators, political commentators, activists, feminists. I think it's really important for two reasons. First, sex manuals remind us that if we are to forge better sexual worlds, we need to forget sex manuals' prescriptive scripts and techniques on how better to seduce, stimulate, suck, and otherwise pleasure ourselves and others. Instead, we must explore the highly gendered cultural codes and material contexts that invest meaning in sex acts, sexual objects, and sexual partners. Second, to forge better social and economic worlds. Academics, feminists, and activists need to pay more attention to sexual pleasure and its contexts. Only by knowing sexual pleasure can we unmake sexual pain. Pleasure is political. For the starving woman, the homeless man, the refugee, the survivor of abuse, talk of bodily ecstasy may be obscene. But I do think that Bell Hooks is right when she suggests that she says something like, our desire for radical social change is intimately linked with the desire to experience pleasure, erotic fulfillment, and a host of other passions. Addressing questions of inequality and abuse will require the political labor of bodies, including ecstatic ones in solidarity with each other. Thanks, that's all I had to say about, about that. Thank you so much um, for, for listening. Look, um, my next talk is actually going to be on perversions on the 11th of November. This is going to be in-person Gresham College. I would love to meet you face to face. And the next lecture will explore the role of law, um, morality and medicine, deciding, well, who has the power to decide what 
which sexual acts are normal and which are abnormal. And how have people labeled perverse effectively challenged their um, status within society? So please join me, Perversion, 11th of November, in person as well as online, Gresham College. And I really look forward uh, to talking with you all. Thanks very much.